0: Eric Sammer is the CTO of Rokana, a company that provides intelligent analysis of event oriented machine data. Eric, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: What is Rokana?
1: So, Rokana is a company building a next generation platform and application for monitoring what we consider to be the, the modern or, or, or even next generation data center. And that means monitoring in terms of uh, log and event data, host metrics, application metrics, all under a single platform, and doing that at modern scale, so on the order of terabytes per day of new data ingested into the system, and then providing real uh, first-class analytics and understanding around that data, um, rather than just surfacing threshold based alerting and things like that, actually letting operators or operations staff or DevOps staff explore the data uh, get a better understanding of what's happening between different actors in the data center for for lack of a better way of expressing it.
0: What are the applications that Rokana needs to do monitoring across like you've got Kafka storm like how how many different things are there that you need to do monitoring on across the data center?
1: I think for systems like this to be useful, they really need to be able to tolerate monitoring and understanding of any potential system that you would find inside of a data center, whether that's new breed data management systems like Hadoop and the Hadoop ecosystem or Cassandra and uh, so on and so forth. Or more traditional systems like database systems like MySQL and Oracle or application servers, Apache HTTPD and Nginx and so on and so forth. I, so, so I think that, you know, uh, it's at this point it's it's insufficient to be able to monitor only a slice of the infrastructure. So Rokana is really looking to build a system that can that can understand every type of application, operating system, and device that you would find either on-premises or in cloud environments.
0: Okay, so we're going to dive into the uh, technical details of that, but first I want to get some of your background what did you do when you were working at Cloudera?
1: Sure. So I joined Cloudera relatively early on in the 20-person range in 2010. And I initially joined Cloudera as part of the field technical services team helping out with some of the large-scale deployments. And that's mostly because my background was in uh, well, a combination of application development or system development, as well as running data centers, you know, in production environments. So um clutter asked me to spend some time helping early hadoop adopters figure out how to deploy these kinds of distributed systems or scale out systems in the wild and that meant flying around the country and helping people plan things out but actually do the also doing the configuration performance tuning and troubleshooting uh quite a bit of troubleshooting um I did that for a little while and then moved back into a more traditional uh, engineering role, which is a little bit more my speed, Um, taking a lot of the sort of applied... Uh, you know, stuff that, that we had seen in the field back into core engineering. And so two teams within engineering that I ran were, or I was responsible for, were developer-facing or developer-centric APIs, including things like file formats like Apache Avro and Parquet uh, and uh, developer toolkit stuff that we started building, like the Kite SDK,
0: and what were the what were the recurring problems that these Hadoop users had?
1: Well, I, I think it's interesting. Um, you know, there aren't a lot or at least up until recently, there weren't uh, a lot of distributed systems out in the wild. Um, Most commercial application systems are are built as single-node systems. So this idea that we were going to bring scale-out infrastructure and technology, Google-style infrastructure, to the masses, and by the masses I mean the Fortune 500 crowd or the Global 2000, um, I think people would struggle with... Uh, you know, all of the normal stuff that you would expect, network failures, communication failures, uh, managing configuration across, you know, keeping things up to date across that many nodes, debugging and diagnosing a lot of the things that would go wrong around um, jobs failing and understanding how a node failure impacted uh, SLA sensitive jobs that were running on large clusters. Um, You know, and and sort of with systems like Hadoop that sort of adapt and react to system failures, I think there's also this element of kind of playing whack-a-mole where a node starts to fail and, you know, replication occurs and the problem starts shifting around the cluster and you have to kind of lock it down and figure out, you know, what is the root cause of node 17 failing and moving all of its work to node 18 or something like that um, and preventing
0: So, so I'd I'd love to hear like some specific examples of how I I I mean, certainly the node failure stuff is interesting too. But I don't know, even if you want to discuss uh, failures that happened or that have been happening as as people's uh, Hadoop infrastructure have gotten more complicated with things like Mesosphere and Docker.
1: Yeah. So uh, you know, and and honestly. You know, given, you know, with my time at Clutter, I hadn't seen a whole lot of overlap yet between the collision between the Hadoop world and the Docker and Mesosphere world because data management systems tend to like to be very close to the metal and the, dynamic elastic, you know, properties of those systems, you know, are are a little bit counter to things like data locality and things like that. Um, So, but I think that we would see uh, weird sort of second derivative problems where uh, problems with uh, group and authentication management infrastructure, identity management infrastructure would begin to be to to experience a denial of service attack effectively when lots of MapReduce jobs would start running and each task running on a n you know a multi-hundred node cluster would start spinning up Unix processes, which would have to uh, do user ID lookups, which would go back to an Active Directory server, which would cause Active Directory to shut down and fail over or something like that. So we would see these sort of weird dependencies within the network of, you know, of services. And, and I think that that kind of problem is the same kind of problem that people struggle with when you start talking about, like, microservices and the dependencies between services and things like that.
0: Yeah, so in the past, uh, like, pre-Rocana, how, how were people debugging these types of problems
1: you know it's (laughs) it's actually uh pretty sad i think a lot of operations staff there are tools in the space for like log management and things like that and there are tools for metric management the problem is is that they each give you sort of a slice of of the data center you have to kind of correlate between those tools yourself sort of in your in your brain so I think at the end of the day people look at these things they're directional they're guidance you know and then then they start going onto machines and grepping log files and writing set and awk scripts I think that that's still in a lot of ways you know considered state of the art debugging for distributed systems and it is it's not pretty it's uh, it's a relatively painful and error prone process
0: Do companies ever have non-deterministic data center problems that are just so bad that it sinks the entire business?
1: That's a great question. I don't know if it ever fully sinks the entire business. Um, kind of depends on how you look at it. I would... The answer to your, the first part of your question is absolutely yes. I think that non-determinism in data centers is par for course. Uh, just a, a typical case is... You know, uh, most things that fail in a data center don't actually fail outright. Distributed systems people deal with this all the time where things are Byzantine failures. Right. They're Byzantine failures and they degrade over time, right? So, what you wind up seeing is for some reason, a specific example, we had a case where data ingest coming into a Hadoop cluster on the order of a couple terabytes a day or something like that was slow for weird reasons and couldn't actually be tracked to anything that we found. And what we found over the course of about three weeks worth of debugging and diagnostics was that there was a flaky cable on a switch that caused uh, one of the nodes in the cluster to intermittently renegotiate at one gigabit versus 100 megabit. And in this instance, data would appear fine. And because there's multiple replicas, maybe data would hit this box, maybe it wouldn't. But you couldn't predict in any meaningful way where the failure was coming from, you know without like really sort of tracking down that, the 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 pattern and i think I think that's the hard part, so i don't know if it ever put a company out of business, but it it certainly makes things more complicated
0: in order to build a product like Rokana, do you have to be a total expert on each of these individual big data services that you're implementing around or? Can you just focus on the pain points that developers often discuss?
1: I think, in particular, this problem is actually a data analysis problem more than it is like a log management or metric monitoring problem. And that's sort of how we think about it, the same way you would think about monitoring financial information on open markets and things like that and extracting information from it. So... I think at the end of the day, it, it inherently is a data integration problem. It is a big data problem. It is a distributed systems problem. And then on top of it, yeah, you certainly need to know about like what happens in data centers. And I think there's some specialized knowledge there. But we think of it more that way than we do about like you know log into a machine and collect some metrics and then display those metrics to you know to operations staff. Um, I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's, you know, that's an answer that we have today. And, and honestly, when we go to hire engineers, we have two teams within Rokana, one that is effectively uh, Linux systems developers and and distributed systems developers that deal with high frequency messaging systems and, you know, things like I Notify in the Linux kernel. Um, for tailing log files and things like that, and then we have an application-centric team that is all about data analysis and vi- data visualization and presentation, and and the more domain-specific or or what do we do with that data uh, type of problems.
0: I like the idea that you're going after a problem. You know, the, the it seems like the scope of your solution co- is is anticipates to cover problems with things like Mesosphere or Docker. But yet you're saying that you don't actually you haven't actually seen these problems happen in the wild very much yet but you know that they are going to happen right
1: Well, I think specifically, uh, I haven't seen Hadoop in that ecosystem of components used with Docker yet. I think Docker and Mesosphere and and sort of this uh, Google Borg style, you know, next generation of virtualization, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, uh, paradigm has not fully eaten into the data centers of our customer base, I think. You find it at places like Twitter and and Google and Facebook, but I think you find it less at banks and insurance companies. Uh, I think it's a matter of time. Um, We have seen these problems with other systems that are just client-server systems that shouldn't be be very complicated, but are. Um, So I think we're getting there. Um, And I think it's going to be a hard problem as developers you know, for scalability or whatever reason or manageability, start breaking things out into, you know, more fine-grained services, um, you're going to see the interaction between those services become a huge operational problem um, because of all the failure scenarios that can, that can happen there. There's a lot more failure that happens in networked systems, obviously, than, w- you know, within a single JVM or C binary or Ruby application or something like that.
0: Yeah it seems like this just combinatorial explosion of potential problems that could occur and um you know I love the idea of of root cause analysis it just sounds like it get it will get so hard with things like you know w- with the containerization type of stuff um and so um I mean do you do you have any like overall strategies like as these systems get more complicated for people what are the types of strategies people should, like, should we, should or is it like a back-to-basics? Like, should people just continue thinking about uh, cap theorem and, you no know, these types of principles? Or are, do we need, like, a new paradigm, new sets of principles?
1: I don't know. It's a good question. Um, I think the way we think about it is to distill... Problems Like this into their failure domains to constrain or decompose the problem just the same way you would in, you know, in terms of like writing an algorithm for sorting or something like that. It's a divide and conquer problem. So when we think about like, how do you find failure? How do you think about how things break down? You, you sort of think about the different levels of, uh, of Zoom, for lack of a better example, right? So you think about the, the host, you think about the process, you think about the environment within which it's running, and then you think about its dependent services and their hosts and things like that. You, you sort of build that graph and you spider outward, um, and then you know sort of intrinsically or, or heuristically that failures in certain places are more likely or less likely, And I think at the end of the day, it's not about human setting thresholds. It's about adaptive models, which is where we spend quite a bit of time, you know, trying to figure out. You you don't want a human to tell you 80% disk space utilization is, is bad. You want to measure the rate of disk space consumption on a machine over time and look for changes in velocity with things like, you know, linear regression models and things like that and actually try and figure out You know, at what point does it become bad? Um, And I think we don't believe when we talk about root cause analysis that we can ever do better than a human brain. Our job is to separate the wheat from the chaff or the signal from the noise to give the human brain, you know, a small enough data set about what's happening within a a, a system or subsystem that they can actually focus on. Because there's no way you can keep, you know, 10 physical locations and, you know, 500 racks and, you know, thousands of services in your head at once. So I think it's about directing the user to where the problem is most likely rather than trying to tell them, you know, this is the exact problem, you know.
0: Okay. Yeah, I really like that approach because it's it's simultaneously... Humble and incredibly needed in uh, in tomorrow's data center. So, how does a developer plug into Rocana?
1: So, there's a bunch of different places. I think that obviously, you know, we support a bunch of uh, mo- we know how to monitor a bunch of uh, services and, and and objects within the data center out of the box. But developers, of course, have custom-built services. They have specialized devices that we might not know about. So obviously, instrumentation or data collection plugins are super common. Um, We have all kinds of data cleansing and transformation logic that uh, allows developers to say, yes, I'm receiving a syslog message But what I really know is that if that syslog message is coming from a Cisco device, I want to extract the MAC address and the source IP and the destination IP and all these other kinds of bits and details. So there's all kinds of plugins and extension points there uh, for things that we haven't thought of. Um, And then there's, you know, at the end of the day, we very much believe that customers should own their data Um, so in a world of proprietary formats and APIs, I think the right thing to do is, you know, in the spirit of open source and having people own their own, their own data, we want people to be able to take advantage of all this data we collect in ways that we haven't thought of, um, which is sort of interesting because when you think about it at the end of the day, um... The data you collect for clickstream, you know, analysis uh, for marketing and user behavior targeting is actually the same data you use for application performance information and security information. So there's plenty of things that we're not going to be able to do for people, but that doesn't mean they should have to collect the data twice, right? So we rely on open source software there, and open file formats, and all these other kinds of things that are still highly optimized, where people can take that and build their own custom applications on top of the data that we collect. Uh, so those are a couple of the places. There's, there's plenty of others.
0: And Rokana provides, quote, intelligent analysis of event-oriented machine data.
1: It's a mouthful. What is,
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what is event-oriented machine data?
1: So mostly what we're getting out there by, by machine, we mean, you know, this is data that's being kicked out of, um, excuse me, services and hosts and things like that, rather than, uh, rather than low volume data, um, that's being generated by, by human beings. Um, so typically this is like high, high volume sensor style data. And by event, what we mean is, you know, uh, data that occurs in response to some kind of action um, which is which is how we think about the world so that can be uh, an application generating a log event you know that it, you know, accepted a request or something like that from a user. It could be an authentication failure event. It could also be collecting a sample of performance metrics from uh, from a database box at a particular point in time. So. Everything we do has this sort of generic event model that is based in time and in response to an initiator or an actor, whatever you want, a data source, whatever you want to call it. So that's what we. And the the
0: the notion the notion of event driven or event oriented programming is a motif lately, um, due to the reasons that you've listed, as as well as the as the popularity of Node.js, I think, which has events at its core. And you define an event, which is super useful. Is event-driven programming related to the idea of a Lambda architecture?
1: I think so. The Lambda architecture is very much about um how you know how do you keep up to date with this sort of deluge you know high volume data that's coming in in a way that is consistent and can be um reasoned about in a performant you know uh, kind of way but i think that a lot of the techniques are the same the idea that um the idea that everything is is time oriented and in data management systems um, and can be built up over time from from different parts and, and sort of composed out of you know the 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 big sort of bucket of stuff that you've collected plus the sort of most recent thing. I don't know that the two concepts around event-oriented programming and, and the Lambda architecture in particular are directly connected, but there are some similar ideas in there about composability of data and, you know, uh, commutability. It's also maybe
0: like a commentary on the, on the dynamism of, of, uh, of systems these days.
1: I think that that's probably true. I think that you, you have a good point there.
0: Tell
1: me about the architecture of Rokana. Sure. So at its core, um, when we think about event data in general, and, you know, the the system is broken up into two major halves. One is the platform that does all the data collection, uh, cleansing, processing, uh, the machine learning aspects of it, uh, and storage, query, and then there's actually the front end, which is all about displaying and letting the user sort of interact with that data in a meaningful way, giving it meaning um, in in the context of a uh, of a domain of like running a data center. So uh, the data platform part is is um, the part that's all about. Um, where we have a bunch of agents that are sourcing data from syslog, from tailing files, from directory spooling, um, and, and host metrics... We have Java APIs that people can use to instrument applications and REST APIs to instrument, you know, receive events from different applications, including browsers and things like that. All of that data flows into Apache Kafka, um, and we've built and and sort of worked on the the uh, data model, which is this this idea of an event, which is represented as Apache Avro as it moves across the wire. So all of that data f- flows in through Apache Kafka, in sort of of a single really large published subscribe topic um, that's partitioned over however many machines we need to uh, in order to deal with the customer's load. what we've basically built there for the platform is what looks like a published, fire firehose of data, like a Twitter firehose of your data center and every, every event that's occurring within the data center. And then there's a bunch of, for lack of a better term, microservices that listen to that firehose and perform different services. So deep storage of event data where we use Apache Hadoop, the, the Hadoop distributed file system, to store all of the event data. We do uh, real-time Full text indexing of log event data using Apache Solar. Um, we do some uh, metric and OLAP style uh, aggregation using some custom built code. It basically looks like stream processing where we're folding uh, events uh, in time windows as they arrive over the stream. That data goes into an Apache Parquet data set on top of uh, HDFS. And then on top of that, we have a SQL engine. We use Clutter and Impala very heavily um, uh, you know, to query that data and display time series charts and graphs and pretty pictures around around the data in the application. Um, and so the application has the smarts of knowing for this type of activity, whether that's like search, it knows to use Apache Solar for time series presentation in charts, it knows that it wants to use SQL and it delegates that kind of query to uh, Clutter and Impala. Um, and so we actually use different storage uh, subsystems and query engines based on the type of work that we're doing. Um, and that's mostly because at the end of the day, there is no one system that's good at both full text and at you know, time series you know, and you know, deep storage. We wind up using accommodation of these systems. How does Rokana use Spark? So it's, it's sort of interesting. Um, I think that we are very interested in Apache Spark um, Apache Flink is another new interesting uh, uh, sort of in-memory processing system. I'll level with you. Our experience has been that the maturity level of these projects, while they're super exciting, they're very uh, difficult to wrangle mm-hmm. Uh, reliably. And I, I want to put a caveat on that because I think it's amazing technology. I have uh, a lot of friends who work in various places that are really successful with these things. But for us, we actually ship an enterprise software product that runs inside of Fortune 500 data centers where we don't actually get to control the environment in which these things run. And as a result of that, our technology choices tend to be a little bit more conservative. If we were building uh Rochanna, like as a SaaS product where we would host it, we might actually use them. But today we actually don't use them. We do everything in stream processing, um, and we do that as the data comes off of Kafka. So we don't actually use Spark or Flink or any of these other projects, or Storm, uh, as exciting as they are. And there's tons of different reasons why we don't use each one of those. But um, but certain- could, could, could you
0: name some? I mean, that, that makes total sense to me. I mean, it's, it's sort of like... You know, people people took a long time to adopt uh, MongoDB, right. if, I, if I understand correctly, just for similar reasons. You know, you need a performant database, and performant in the sense that like it doesn't just do arbitrary wrong things. Yes. Um, so, so yeah. But what are those? What are those? Those reasons? I'm curious because you know. So one thing I talked to the to Eli Collins, who's uh, the chief technologist at Cloud Era, and. Um, He said there was, he had this thing he talked about called the rule of three, I think, which he was referring to, like, for each of these verticals, like the big data verticals, like, for example, streaming, you've got three, at least three competing things. You've got, like, Storm, uh, Spark, and, uh, sure, Flink, Yeah. right? And then, so so it sounds like, um, I mean, and I think part of what he was getting at there was, like, the, with the rule of three you have like a natural competitive system that will iron out a lot of the kinks just in the overall world of streaming. So so I'm curious, like what are these kinks in in streaming that you see?
1: Yeah, you know, in Eli it was one of the reasons why I joined Cludera. is a super smart guy. I think he's dead on. Um the uh I I think that uh just the general maturity you need that competitor that competitive aspect to sort of push things toward maturity you also need enough people just who are willing to be the the guinea pig about running these things in production. Um, So when, you know, we do do a lot of stream processing and when we did an internal evaluation and certainly I spent a lot of time looking at the open source ecosystem around these types of things while I was at Clutter as well um, over the four years that I was there. um, I think that uh, we sort of put it through its paces and we measure things like how it responds under failures and all sorts of different kinds of conditions We also have to look at things like API compatibility and things like that. Um, So with Spark in particular, with where it was exactly today and right now, and I think it's got a lot of traction, and this probably won't be true very soon, the problem for us was that um, different Scala versions mixing between Kafka, what Kafka used and what spark used became super problematic um with the the sort of just the pace that scala compatibility is going there there's been a bunch of problems there around binary compatibility between scala versions and needing to talk to multiple scala projects at the same time in the same jvm was super problematic for us um but, this is so Inside Baseball. I really like it. Yeah, this. so we, we're going to get even deeper into the baseball <laughs> Okay, great. That's for sure. So, um, so that was one problem that we had, but we could kind of get over that with some trickery and class-loading nonsense. The, uh, the real issue was within uh, Spark Streaming in particular, and I want to differentiate between Spark Streaming and Spark proper, Spark Streaming serialized a bunch of job information into the driver program and what that meant was whenever you recompiled the code there was a chance that when you restarted the job you would lose your state information you wouldn't be able to reconstitute that information which was a huge problem for us because we have to guarantee that every event that we process gets processed. Uh, we can't drop data at any particular point in time. So if we shipped a customer a new version and we had recompiled, there was a chance that Spark would not be able to remember the last place in the stream where it was previously processing and that was like a showstopper for us we just couldn't use it and i think they will eventually fix that problem i think it's still a problem last i checked um but i think folks are are working on it um with storm so so you
0: mentioned you mentioned kafka um so would you say that kafka has like uh i guess crossed that chasm uh of acceptability i mean kafka's been around for a while and Now there's, you know, Confluent is a company built entirely around Kafka. Um, So has that passed its, its test for being bulletproof enough?
1: I think it probably depends on who you ask. I think for us, yes, because we know exactly what our use case looks like and what our data looks like and what our volumes roughly look like. And our use of Kafka is very predictable. I think for people who uh use it in, you know, more varied ways with different use cases and different event sizes or message sizes, um, as well as, uh, you know, multi-tenant workloads, I think is the big challenge there. I think those people have seen some issues. Although, admittedly, I think that I think Kafka has crossed uh, that chasm in terms of stability and robustness. Um, you see, every once in a while, folks have some trouble with it, but I think mostly Kafka just works as advertised has, has been has been my and and certainly our experience.
0: Do you use Confluent?
1: No, um, we don't use Confluent partic- in particular. Because of, you know, there's some, like I said, some business constraints around making sure that we, uh, that our customers can get support from a single vendor for what we would con- call the entire platform, the, the ecosystem. And for us, that's primarily Hortonworks and Cloudera uh, today. Um, I think uh, Confluent supports a part of our ecosystem, and we've seen we've done some work with our customers who are using both us and Confluent. But we don't have a strict business relationship with Confluent uh, directly. Yeah, you know that
0: it seems like such an interesting development because like you're starting to see this uh, this market fragmentation of different cloud providers, where it's like you know Cloudera, Databricks, Rochana, uh Confluent. And it's like, if I want to get all these different, like, X as a service, you know, uh, does that mean I have to, like, be, you know, be on the phone with, like, five different support technicians from each, of, like, one from each of these companies at once? Like, is, is, the, is that the future of how companies are going to have to build their data centers?
1: I don't know that that's a future statement. I think that's a today statement. <laughs> <laughs> as somebody who ran... So, for instance, at one of my previous companies, when I ran data centers and I was responsible for them, I think on any given day, I would have about 30 to 40 different vendor products within the data center. Um so for hard drive failures, I'd be talking to IBM or Dell or HP. And for, you know, networking, it was Arista and Cisco and extreme, you know, I mean, that's, I think that is the cost. And I don't think moving to the cloud fixes this because anybody who's moved, you've, you've got a lot of stuff with Amazon, but then you've got... Salesforce for your you know, business people. You've got Okta for your single sign-on. I think it's just a different... I, I think that's always a problem. And that's, that is just the... That is the chains that, that rest around our neck as technology people.
0: How does Rokani use machine learning?
1: Um, so primarily... Uh, our goal, like I said earlier, was you know is to lift the interesting bits out of this big bucket of data to tell people where to look in the haystack. and in a lot of ways, that is uh, anomaly detection and trying to find the thing that just isn't normal or is new uh, or we haven't seen before. So for us, um, we have some code that sits in one of these Kafka consumers. That's where it lives inside of our architecture. And as data is moving off of Kafka, um, we are building models that understand you know, current and previous time windows of what the data looks like. And um, today, one example, for instance, is we do some uh, piecewise linear regression modeling of uh, time series data so that if Disk I.O. is typically in some range once it starts to deviate from that range significantly and we use merged ranges and all sorts of other good stuff at that point we can surface to the operator in the in the user interface you know hey this thing normally looks like this it's currently way outside of that range they don't have to set that range we learn that range they don't have to tell us what the threshold is we figure out what the right threshold is based on historical performance and things like that so that's one way we use we use uh, machine quote-unquote machine learning or advanced analytics or fancy math, whatever you want to call it.
0: I want to call it machine learning. Let's do that. So, okay, <laughs> what, what do your customers say about Rokana?
1: Um, I think that, and, and admittedly, we're, we're pretty early on. We've been in private beta up until March of this year. We've started picking up more and more customers. I think the biggest reason people talk to us and what they like about us is that they don't have to cherry pick what data... They get to see uh, for diagnostics, or performance analysis, or capacity planning, or you know, general purpose monitoring. They, the system that we have built, tolerates these. You know, new breed of, you know, tens of terabytes a day and gives them the ability to sift through that data in a meaningful way without searching for, you know, error in the logs. That's not useful when you have hundreds of thousands of machines or services in a data center, because um, at any given time, everything's spitting out an error about something. Um, okay. Can you give another
0: example of, of how a customer has used Rokana to track down the root cause of a problem? You don't, it doesn't have to be a specific company. You're talking to generalities, however you...
1: Please. Yeah, so I, I think that um, one instance uh, actually happened during a proof of concept we were doing with a, with a customer where we had installed the system, and within uh, about five minutes of the system being installed, one of the first things that we typically wire up is syslog ingestion from the operating system itself, and all of a sudden the system starts like kind of yelling at us and saying... Um, there is a really strange number of SSH failures occurring on these five boxes, and it's spread out over this amount of time. And when we looked at it, what we found was it was an SSH brute force dictionary attack where somebody was just laterally moving across the network in a slow spread, uh, looking for bad accounts. Right. So like that was just a really tangible instance. And in,
0: that's a great success story.
1: Yeah, and I think it's low-hanging fruit, right? I, but I think right. at the end of the day, people just don't have tools to look at this stuff. Maybe you see it, maybe you don't, but it's just a lot of noise to look through.
0: How do New Relic and AppDynamics complement Rokana's business?
1: It's interesting. I think both of those guys are uh, excellent in the application performance management. And, and New Relic and AppD both have this Uh, really rich feature set around uh, tracing between method calls within applications and and even across services, Um, we're actually operating one level kind of below that where we're not looking for method calls and what, you know, uh, within an application, we're actually looking for how services interact with one another at the macro level um, within within the data center. So uh, today I think it's super complementary. I think the other issue that, that we've observed is that a lot of people want to just throw more data at New Relic or AppDynamics. And for whatever reason, you know, that's been you know, a challenge for, for some folks. So to some extent, I think that you know, we've seen our customers kind of dragging us that direction where they want to give us tracing data, you know, Google, uh, Google Dapper style application tracing and multi-service tracing and things like that, um, just because of volume and, and complexity.
0: If too many of these new big data products come out, and and they come out in a way that's like you know black swanish, and you don't, you can't predict, uh, you know, I think you know, I think it's I think it's fair to say that in some sense you can't predict where technology goes. So how do you keep your API flexible enough for a new product to just plug in when a developer comes out with a new product?
1: Yeah, I think that's always a challenge for us. It's around, you know, uh, finding the right abstraction for the purposes of data integration and, and moving data around. And I actually think that Apache Kafka and messaging in general is a fantastic paradigm for data integration because the, the lowest possible primitive is the stream, is this real time feed of data you can always turn streams into batches, but you can't turn batches into streams without losing latency on data. So I think that having this is actually um, the right level of abstraction. So if a new system, like if a customer comes to us and says, what you have is fantastic, I also want um, all, you know, all user click transactions Uh, or purchase events, let's say, in Cassandra or Mongo or Redis or whatever your weapon of choice is, um, we say, no problem. You can listen off of this firehose for only this particular event type, which is the purchase event, and you can insert into Cassandra. And now we've given them a real-time... Feed into a system, you know, where the you know it's it's not interrupting, it's not on the critical path of our system. It's actually a really nice integration point. So this actually gives us a fair amount of flexibility that way.
0: Is there an opportunity for developers to um, you know do any sort of open source uh, building on top of Rokana?
1: I think so. Uh, I hope so. That—that um, That is, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, the, the sort of thing we would like to promote. Um, most of Rokana's engineering staff are open source people, you know, at their core. So we've kind of built the application in a way, like I said, where we... We don't have Rokana specific file formats. We don't have, uh, we have as little Rokana specific infrastructure in our underlying data platform as humanly possible. We build on top of Apache Kafka and HDFS and, you know, uh, uh, Solar and all these other technologies for that reason so that, you know, there there is the opportunity to have the community build on top. And of course, the community doesn't build on top of proprietary stuff, right? That's that's always been the case. As an open source developer myself, you, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want to build a ton of infrastructure on a vendor's product, right? That's that's a it's always a, a tough case uh, because of lock in, and you, you just don't have the same control and stuff like that. So we want the underlying platform to effectively be. Um, the right stitching together, the right architecture, using a bunch of open source components, um, you know, wherever humanly possible, um, and always in file formats and data formats and APIs. And then, you know, where we spend most of our, you know, actual, you know, business dollars, for lack of a, a better way of phrasing it, is is in the smarts in the application. Um, do, you,
0: do you think you're basically co-opting the, like, Cloud Era's approach to open source?
1: Well, in a lot of ways, I'm certainly biased by it. I joined Clutter because I I think the right, I think the model of the platform must be open source. Um, you must give back uh, the underlying platform. I think that's, that's the right model. I, I think that, our customers and, and open source developers around the world are growing increasingly intolerant of proprietary infrastructure. I, I think they just don't like it they'll pay for support but they don't um, and tooling that makes it easier but I, I don't think that they want to be locked in. I think that's a fair that's a fair thing. Um, so I actually like and, that model a lot.
0: If you could make suggestions to the developer community about what to build on top of Rokana, what would you suggest?
1: Um, you know, I guess at some level, I'd be excited to be surprised um, <laughs> to see what people come up with on their own. I can tell you that people have already built some relatively interesting security-related applications on top of us. They have built some interesting um, uh, e-commerce and data-driven product uh, applications on top of us. Um, so the example I give, not that this is built on top of Rokana is like LinkedIn's "People You May Know" is built by you know feeds of you know who's connecting you know to whom and all this other good stuff on LinkedIn. I think that's a good example of what I mean by data-driven product. Um, so we've actually seen people do things like that on top of Rokana because it's the I think it's the right platform, the right infrastructure to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, and I think LinkedIn's interesting because, uh, you know, obviously that's where Kafka germinated. And I wonder, like, do you think if any, does the germination of Kafka within LinkedIn as a back-end service, do you think the the effect of, of Kafka being such a core uh, component of LinkedIn, has that propagated at all to, like, how the product works as a whole, like in terms of the front end user experience.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely true, and it's always true initially, right? Like, um, yeah, even within Hadoop, you saw some of the some of the Yahoo isms for you know, sort of baked into the code base and sort of the the paradigm in which it was built. I think the same is true of LinkedIn. Um, I think that's true of a lot of different things. You know, they they carry the the essence of how the engineering team thinks about a particular problem. So a lot of the systems inside of LinkedIn were built with this notion of everything's a stream, you know, because of because of Kafka. And I think uh, that kind of got carried through with things like SAMHSA and all these other projects that are coming out of and related to uh, Kafka proper. Um, so I think that's true. I think that happens a lot.
0: So right now we have a variety of products that all plug into one another in frustrating ways. There's Hadoop and Spark and Kafka, and nobody really wants to configure these, which is why businesses like Rokana and Cloudera are so fantastic. So what are your projections for how these types of functionality will be unified in a more user-friendly way? Or are you just like bearish on the user experience?
1: I... I think it's a great question. Um, I, I think this problem has existed for a long, long time, right? You can look at Linux and Linux distributions as, as sort of a, a manifestation of the same thing. Um, and I think that naturally, the either customers of early companies or users of the technology start to find the, the right way they want to consume these things. There are things that are standalone forever, right? Like Apache, HTTPD, you know, Tomcat, those things have been standalone for a long time. Um, but I think that there are other things like the Linux kernel where very, very, very few people, except for five people who sit in a research office, you know, consume that directly. Um, I think most people consume that stuff through Linux distributions because that's the right level of, of abstraction. Um, so I, I think that pattern just keeps repeating I don't think that there's ever an end state where you have a single open source thing that is uh, the equivalent of like IBM or, or Oracle's you know, product catalog, right? Where you download one big thing and get instant Google in a box or something like that. Um, I think companies will always chop off logical segments of that, like, like Mesosphere has with Mesos and that, that ecosystem or Docker uh, Cloudera and HortonWorks with the Hadoop ecosystem, Confluent with the Kafka subset of of that ecosystem. If you if you count that as the same thing, Rokana is a little higher up the stack. We use all that other stuff, but um, so I don't know if that's a, a good answer, but that's the one that comes to mind.
0: No, it's a great answer. Are Are there any types of big data products that are getting less attention today than you think they deserve?
1: Oh, interesting. Um, I,
0: are there, whether open source or, like, business.
1: You know, I think there was a lot of excitement around graphs and graph databases. Um, that didn't really go anywhere. Um, at least I haven't seen, like, a huge latch-on to that. I think Neo4j... Yeah, that's a good point. yeah. Neo4j, did, you know, does good business, you know, insofar as I know. Um, but I feel like the the excitement around graphs has has waned a little bit. They're they're not the cool hip thing anymore. I think document databases are not the cool hip thing anymore. They're kind of commonplace. Um, I actually don't know that there's anything out there that is you know undersold. I think if anything, <laughs> there's stuff out there that's oversold. <laughs>
0: Will the Hadoop ecosystem ever be too bloated as a platform?
1: Uh, That's a great question. I think it's always a risk. I think that it's always possible that people start to cram, you know, whenever there's hype around a particular technology, I think that people try and turn that technology into the solution for every problem they can possibly find. So I think the, the idea that, um, you know, that everything has to be based on Hadoop or that everything has to be based on Cassandra or Kafka or pick your poison, I think is, is a bad Idea. I think that that's how technologies get a bad rap for not being good at something. Uh, I think it's fine for technologies to do one thing and do it well. Um, So I, I think it's possible that it gets bloated. But you know, in a lot of ways, it gets bloated as a side effect of the hype surrounding things. So I would... I would encourage people to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's nothing wrong with SQL databases. There's nothing wrong with Postgres and MySQL. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with you know, that kind of technology. I don't think Hadoop replaces all of it. Um, and I think that's okay. I think, that, I think that's normal.
0: What's the future of Rokana?
1: Oh, goodness. So I think that um, over time... We would love to see uh, new and exciting ways of understanding the relationships of systems within a data center. Um, We think that there's very little, comparatively, uh, very little uh, tooling around... Uh, better ways of understanding that data. Um, But we also think that there's a lot of applications that are related to running the data center around. Uh, They're probably boring things for a lot of people, but very exciting for others. Things like compliance, things like security, things like um, capacity planning that are just um, really underserved, and especially in a market where I believe that containers and elastic infrastructure and you know what i would consider virtualization 2.0 like better virtualization that's closer to the metal without you know some of the trade-offs of traditional hypervisors and things like that i think that's fundamentally shifting uh the way people build data centers and networks and systems in general i think amazon Google Compute, Azure are good examples of that. Applications that are built natively for those systems look super different than they look for uh, than they look in traditional data centers. So I, I think that understanding you know, the infrastructure in that model is going to be what we have to figure out as part of Rokana.
0: So to close off, I'd love to get a little bit of background on your experience as a developer. What was your greatest inflection point in your career as a developer, whether it, whether that's a negative inflection point or a positive inflection point?
1: Um, I think that, you know, and I, I probably took a, a different path than a lot of, you know, other listeners and guests have. You know, my background, you know, I was a high school dropout. I didn't go to college. I was self-taught um, and in a lot of ways came up through Uh, the dot-com era in New York City, Um, and I think that probably the biggest thing for me was, you know, finding just really talented mentors that would answer all of my silly questions and nudge me toward things that I was good at when I didn't know what those things were. And in a lot of ways, you know, getting closer to at some point in my career, and, and quite frankly, I think it had a lot to do with joining Cloudera, which is where I really doubled down on a lot of the, you know, infrastructure and systems and distributed systems, you know, uh, experience that, that I've that I had, you know, kind of built up in bits and pieces along the way. Um I think that was pivotal for me. Um it was a really important experience. Um it was a great place to be and an amazing team to work with. I, I don't why did you drop out of high school? Oh that's a totally different discussion that I don't think really? anyone okay, wants to know about. <laughs> Really? Okay. I I can guarantee you now there are people that want
0: to know about it. It's okay. We don't have to go there. We don't have
1: to go there. I think that's Um, a not safe for work conversation, or at least a series of not safe for work conversations.
0: It's all right. The the people at work are wearing headphones.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I think, I'll put it to you this way. I think... uh, if people want to sit down and ask me that question privately, I think I would answer it, but I don't think I okay, well, answer it. Okay. Well, that.
0: let me ask you do, you. do you think Do you think that high school is overrated?
1: I think um, a lot of the educational system is built for the median, and I think that's probably maybe the right thing to do. I'm I'm not an educator, but I think that um, it wasn't built for me. Um, I didn't. Learn and think about things the same way other people did, for better or worse. And um, and I had I had an instance where someone within the education system told me, "Hey, look, some people are just meant to pump gas, and that's okay." And <laughs> I kind of spent the rest of my life going, "I'll show you." And that meant writing a book for O'Reilly and working in places like Cloudera. And to some extent, that was the best motivator ever: was having people that that were convinced I would wind up pumping gas you know <laughs> and so Yeah I can, I, can yeah, I can relate to that I relate to that
0: I love I love it I love proving those people wrong it feels really good
1: It's very spiteful it's a spiteful existence I live but um but it's okay I'm I'm okay with how you know de-evolved I actually am <laughs>
0: that's awesome Okay well Eric Sammer thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily it's been a real pleasure
1: Thank you so much for uh, for having me it's been a pleasure here too